The Voice America Business Channel is brought to you by Intercall, the worldwide conferencing leader. Check out easy and reliable conferencing solutions at www.intercall.com forward slash radio. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, our special guest is Peter Fengay. Peter is a senior lecturer at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, that's MIT. He is the founding chair of the Society for Organizational Learning, um, an author of multiple books. Many of you know his uh, most famous, The Fifth Discipline, The Art and Practice of Learning Organization. His book in 2004 uh, took the the, um, world by storm, Presence, Human Purpose, and the Field of the Future, and his most recent book, Necessary Revolution, How Individuals and Organizations Are Working Together to Create a Sustainable World. Peter, welcome to Leading Conversations today. Thank you, Cheryl. It's really great to have you here. Where are you today? I'm just sitting here in my kitchen. Oh. That's easy. That's, that's easy. That's easy. You're on the Yeah, I just poured some more hot water into my teacup. So right. that's, I think that's called multitasking, right? <laughs> Well, and, and in the world today, you've got to be able to do that and do that well, even if yeah. you are a guy. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. So um, you live in the, the Northeast, right? You live in the U.S. Yeah, we live in central Massachusetts. Yeah, nice. Nice part of the country. Yeah, it's and very Is it spring yet? Well, this time of year you go, depends what day you ask. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, it's right. been, pretty, been pretty nice, but they're talking about a foot of snow tonight, so you never know. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, there's wow. another snowstorm rolling through. We'll see what happens. Well, enjoy that hot cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good good afternoon for a hot cup of tea. Absolutely. So, Peter, you know, we are truly privileged to have you here today. Um, you have been an inspiration for me as somebody who is in the field of leadership and executive coaching and organizational development and organizational learning and um, many, many of our listeners today are thrilled to be able to hear you speak. You know, you, you have really been um, the father of a lot of systems thinking and organizational learning. And I know you're very humble and you always attribute a lot of that to other people. Um, but, you, you know, you really have inspired so many to take this path and to change organizations with this. I'm curious about um, what, you know, what happened to you as a kid that got you interested in the idea of systems thinking? I mean, you know, our childhood informs a lot about who we are as an adult. So I'm curious, was there anything that 
you had, any experiences you had or family life you had that led to this? Well, that's probably a question that prompts a lot of a lot of random responses, right? I mean, how much do you remember about the age of <laughs> zero to five? Uh, so, I, I think there are probably lots and lots of things, but one that comes to mind is, you know, when I was uh, when we were when I was four and a half, my family moved from Chicago to Los Angeles, and that's actually where I grew up, and it was a kind of an extraordinary time to grow up. Because I think it was the end of Los Angeles as a uh, as a kind of almost a paradise. You ever talk to people who grew up in Los Angeles in the 30s and the 40s? I mean, it really yes. was paradise. Yes. I mean, it was palm trees. It was just incredible weather. It's kind of hard to imagine today, but if you ever sure. see photos or talk to people. Uh, but when we were there, it was right at the beginning of the extraordinary growth. And I'll, I'll never forget as a child riding in the back seat of my mom and dad's car through the San Fernando Valley, which is where we lived, and uh-huh. seeing nothing but miles and miles of orange groves and lemon groves. That's all mm-hmm. you could see. Within 10 years, they were all gone. They were shopping oh, wow. malls and subdivisions. And uh, that left, a, I think, uh, I'm sure, quite an imprint on me about just how rapidly um, the, the development, you know, human development, human expansion can totally transform uh, a natural environment. So that that's certainly one thing that was quite formative. Well, that must have been made quite an imprint, as you say. Yeah. So did you stay in Southern California? Very no, long? no, I went to the Bay Area to go to college. And then basically I, I watched a recapitulation of the same thing. I mean, it, uh-huh. the same thing was starting to happen in the Bay Area. That was uh-huh. right when the whole Silicon Valley process was really taking off. And, and again, the incredibly beautiful natural landscape was being transformed and uh, made into uh, a modern city uh, overnight. So, yeah, I didn't stay there <laughs> too long after I finished college. <laughs> I kind of It's funny that I ended up here in the Northeast, came here yeah. as, a grad, as a graduate student initially, um, not really intending to stay, but two things happened. One is I really got to like New England and where we live. I mean, we literally live in a house that was my wife's grandfather's fishing cabin. So I guess Uh-oh. against that backdrop of of uh, incredible, you know, rapid change, not always for the better, um, this has become kind of a little island of stability. I, I, I guess I was partly at some level something I really, really was looking for. Um, and then also I, I, I found a mentor at MIT and literally was the only place in the world to do what or study what I could study there. So the two of them kind of came together, and I've been in New England ever since. Well, how did you decide what you wanted to study? Well, I think that it was, again, probably seeds that planted in many different facets of, of my childhood. But I remember, I think this was either before I went to college or maybe my first year or two of college, I remember having conversations with my mom in which uh, I told her it seemed to me there was really really only one problem in the world. It was the same problem in many, many different forms. And the problem was we were creating this incredible uh, interdependence, this incredible web connecting everybody all around the world, and at an accelerating pace. And nobody understood it, and nobody had any control of it. And I really do think that's still true. I think it's a very hard thing for us to face uh, directly, this complete 
complete lack of control of the forces of, I guess today we just call it global industrialization. Um, but it's really true. I mean, the, the genie's out of the bottle. No one has any ability to control this. And every once in a while, I think this kind of shows up emotionally when you realize how deep, and I, I think, again, generally unacknowledged, but very pervasive, is the sense of fatalism. I think we, we live in a very strange cultural milieu where on the surface there's this kind of chest-thumping confidence. Look at the latest devices we've just created, right? Whenever anybody wants to talk about the future, they talk about technology. So technology is our kind of metaphor for progress. But um, as soon as you ask people what they think about Washington politics or the gap between rich and poor or... Uh, climate change or the destruction of ecosystems, you get almost the exact opposite. You know, other than, you know, maybe some people who believe that technology is going to magically solve all these problems, uh, you get this sense that, well, things really are pretty bad and they're not likely to get any better. So that's, I guess that's where what I'm talking about as this web of interdependence that's outside of our control really tends to show up emotionally because, generally speaking, people don't like to say we're out of control, but I would say right. that's, that's pretty accurate. Well, and grow, believe me, growing up in Los Angeles with it was a vivid experience of that. <laughs> not being in control. Yeah, yeah, no one's in control. I mean, it's not just that I'm not in control, you're not in control. Nobody's in control. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when I think about what's happening right now um, in Japan with the incident and the earthquake and the tsunami and the the nuclear reactors um, that are likely not going to be able to be saved, um, you know, it makes me wonder about all this technology. It makes me wonder about how how really vulnerable we are. And, um, you know, this is a situation where this has this has stopped their society this mm-hmm. has right. and we are being affected right. because right. you know we are dependent on them in some way oh, and yeah. talk, a, talk a little bit about you know what how you are seeing this well i think you've you said that the key word um to me it's a poignant tableau of the vulnerability of modern living you know, the average pound of food in America travels about 2,000 miles from where it's produced or grown to where where it's consumed. And that works great so long as it works, right? And we all can amble down to our grocery store and kind of literally buy stuff from all around the right. world, just everyday stuff, you know, like apples that have traveled right. 10,000 miles from New Zealand. Right. Uh, and we don't even think about it. Until you just pause a little bit and say, but wait a second, you know, what is, what is this massive system of food production and distribution hinge upon? And what yeah. could disrupt it? Um, so, I mean, that's just a, an illustration, but I think you see that all around. You know, the, the technology is wonderful, but we live in a world of artifacts that none of us understand. If your car breaks down, you can't even go to your local garage anymore to fix it because right. the garage won't have necessarily the technology to fix that car. Right. And on and on and on. Now, I think there's kind of two ways you can react to this. The more common reaction is you, you ignore it, you go into denial, uh, <laughs> but deep down that underlying emotion of fatalism and vulnerability um, uh, is still there. 
okay? The other is, of course, you, you react to it and you say, well, i got to start growing my own food. Not too many people do that, but some do. It's the right. same, same reaction that, you know, I remember years ago as a kid, everybody wanted to build their own bomb shelter. Um, sure. But neither of those get at the underlying conditions or the forces that are producing those conditions. And yet, obviously, that's what's needed. It is, it is the overall kind of um, drift or the overall kind of engines of global industrial expansion that are producing all of these conditions. We don't really have any sense of our ability to influence those, but at another level, they're just us. You know, we're all part of that system. And this is the profound kind of um, paradox at the heart of the system's perspective. I mean, you're dealing with, quote, systems. You're dealing with phenomenon yeah. forces, interdependency that's way beyond you or me. Uh, right. If either you or I want to transform the global food system, you know, forget about it. One person's not going to do that. One organization's not going to do that. On the other hand, that system is us. That system right. arises from the choices we make every day. The main thing is it's an us, not an I. It's a we, you know, it's a collective phenomenon. And I think that's really where all of our work really got started, which is how do you start to deal directly with uh, unleashing or developing the capabilities for collective change? Mm-hmm. Well, and when you say that, I think about all of the unspoken tacit agreements that we live into every day. Um, you know, we agree that, well, gee, we have to drive cars. We agree right. that we have to buy the stuff from the grocery store. And we agree that um, it's just too much trouble to put a garden in somewhere in the city. And, um, and, and people who think outside of that are the anomaly. Right. And, and, and there's actually pressure on them to not do that, you know. And, and I'm wondering, what is it going to take for us to hit a, a tipping point where that shifts? I mean, is it going to take crisis? Because some people think that that is what it sure. would take. Oh, yeah. You know, but is it going to take that? Well, I think that's, you know, behind the denial you know, which they say is without doubt the most pervasive reaction. No, there's no real problem. I'm just going to keep my nose glued to the television set or my right. device or whatever and right. let the day-to-day just kind of dominate. Um, behind that, usually, if you ask people that, I would say the vast majority think that, you know, only a crisis will bring about a change. And this is not very unusual. I mean, we've dealt with this for years within organizations because in many ways, you know, we've cut our teeth on all these system change issues by working within organizations, traditionally within businesses, but increasingly schools, uh, nonprofit organizations. You see the exact same thing. You know, you ask people, are things ever going to change? And they'll say, no, probably not, unless there's a crisis. If there's a real crisis and people's jobs depend upon it, you know, by golly, they'll change. The only problem with that theory is that once the crisis is over, the change is over, too. Right. So it kind of illustrates the superficiality of it, and it's fundamentally a reactive stance that mm-hmm. things will only change if human beings react. They do not change out of choice. And I think that's the first step into starting to illuminate a very different view of, of change. You have to really believe deep down 
in the power of choice, not just individually, but collectively. And you might say sitting behind that is the power of awakening or consciousness mm-hmm. or awareness. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that's simple, and I'm not kind of imagining a magic wand where suddenly everybody's going to wake up and have an awakening of consciousness. But I actually don't think there's any real option, and it's not even a black-and-white matter. Um, crises are here. Right, we don't have to wait yeah. for crises. Yeah. You know, we have to read the newspaper. Right. You know, we live in an era of kind of rolling crises, whether they're uh, ones like in Japan, which presumably, you know, the view would be well, it's brought about by a natural, natural disaster, mm-hmm. or ones that are completely man-made, like political upheavals and all that. Sure. So yeah. I don't think it's an either-or. I think the slightly different way to say it is, in an era of crisis, how do you access awareness and choice? Well, that's a great question, and we're going to talk more about that when we come right back. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. If you lead a team of any kind, you need to listen to this show. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Well, welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Savino, and we are speaking with Peter Senge today. So, Peter, in the last segment, um, you left us with a great question. How do you access awakening, consciousness, awareness in oneself? What do you think? Well, I think it's, a, it's not a new question. Um, the only thing that's new is the context or the setting. So in a, in a context of this uh, extraordinary global society we've created and this web of interconnectedness and in all likelihood increasing incidents or occurrences of, of breakdown and crises. Um, I mean, we know what that will mostly do. It will evoke fear. And, mm-hmm. and I've felt for a long time that fear is, uh, again, much more pervasive than we're inclined to recognize. Um, and, and out of fear comes um, defensiveness. I was quite taken a few months back when a 
young Chinese woman came up to me after a talk I'd given. She was a graduate student in Cambridge, and she said, you know, that's the first, you're the first professor I've heard speak in my two years here that had something positive to say about China. Oh, my. She was a Chinese student, and she just kind of gotten used to that. I was really struck by that, you know, because, mm-hmm. well, I don't think, you know, China, everybody has their own problems. China's caught in the same set of forces that countries all around sure. the world are caught in. Still, uh, I do have a, a deep interest and kind of lifelong interest in traditional Chinese culture and mm-hmm. philosophy and practices. And, and I frankly think in, in some ways the Chinese are, are exercising real leadership in the world today that's not coming from the West. Right. But but that's all kind of beside the point. I, I thought what really struck me about her comment is that well, in a in a in a climate where fear is the pervasive emotion, defensiveness is a very common expression of that. It's us against them, and you know everybody is kind of circling the wagons. You know, it's still not really feasible as an American politician at the national level, to be sure to take anything but kind of an overt adversarial stand against countries like China. You've got to keep saying how we're going to be tough on them. Um, I mean, the the example I was thinking of when I, uh, I mentioned a minute ago that in some ways the Chinese are taking some real leadership is in October of, the, of last year, uh, the party made two historic announcements. The Central Committee of the Chinese Party made two historic announcements which were uh, almost uniformly ignored in the West. The first was, for the first time in 35 years, they lowered the growth target for the overall economy to single digits. Seven to eight percent is the target in the next five-year plan. It'll probably be similar in the subsequent five-year plan. And they announced that their aim was to reduce the carbon intensity of the Chinese economy 40 to 45 percent by 2020. Now, you multiply those two, and you realize that what the China committed to was to leveling the growth of fossil fuel-based emissions in this decade. Wow. Now, that's, I mean, business as usual, they would double or triple. Right. So that represents the kind of sea change in political commitment that everybody has kind of been waiting for who's really concerned about climate change around the world. You've got two giant players in this, China and the U.S., and China did what everybody's been waiting for, actually came forward with a major national commitment, and it virtually went unnoticed. <laughs> Which is pretty interesting if you think about it, and again shows how predisposed we are to only yeah. see what's not working, to only right. pay attention to those new bits of news that reinforce our underlying fear and defensiveness, and to just filter out signs of real hope and possibility. So it's a, it's a long roundabout answer to your question, but I think it's a very small first step. We all have to start to cultivate our capacity to perceive in a more balanced way. And I say that carefully. I, I don't mean to just focus on the positive. That would be stupid. Right. You know, right. there are humongous problems in the world. And it's another form of denial just to say, well, somebody else is going to worry about that. No, you know, we're all connected, and we all ought to be paying attention to that which is really concerning us. On the other hand, we have to develop a real ability, and we have to kind of go around our media, because our media won't help us much on this, to really notice what we would be in line with what we want to see. 
and to really acknowledge it and pay attention to it. And, you know, to me, it comes back to the first rule of all system change. You find what it is that you're seeking to exist on a large scale, already existing on a small scale, and you find how to encourage it. You don't manufacture these things from scratch. In every corporation, every organization I've ever been in where people had some real skill at it, systemic change, their, their core strategy always was the same. You find where what it is that needs to manifest on a larger scale is already present, and you find ways to encourage it, to grow it, to develop it, to understand what limits its natural uh, 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 growth. So well, and that- it, it kind of comes back to that. And that also would require a bit of patience, right? Oh yeah, and perceptiveness. I mean, you've got to mm-hmm. you've got to really kind of have an idea. Where I mean, when I when I was in, I was actually in China in October when those announcements were made. Everybody in China was talking about, it. and it was quite fascinating to come back to the U.S. and see nobody talking about. It. So yeah. clearly, this is this is a big gap right now. And as I say, our media are definitely part of the problem because mm-hmm. they're there to sell newspapers and, and, and minutes uh, airtime. So right. they, they, their, their business model is pretty simple. What's bad sells. Well, and do you think that the story there is that it was China who said it and that's why it was ignored or that it was more the positive news and so that's what made it irrelevant? I think it was both. Okay. I think both are true. I think, again, the business model is to focus on, you know, what's horrific and what's scary, yeah. and, and that's yeah. what draws people's attention, you know, kind of moths to the flame, you know, just inexorably drawn to stories of disaster and suffering mm-hmm. and, and warfare and so on. Um, but I also think it, there is, in the U.S. particularly, I think you see this much less so in Europe, in the U.S., a, a very deep fear of China. And the mm-hmm. Chinese feel that. That's why yeah. that woman's comment was so striking to me. Yeah, I think we see ourselves losing our perch. You know, oh, yeah. We've had this image, you know, that we're perched on top of everybody. That's clearly not the case. It's been increasingly less the case for a few decades. It's not going to be the case in the future. We're kind of like a teenager who's just waking up and realizing the world doesn't revolve around him or her. <laughs> you know, so it, it is a kind of a real uh, adult transition that this country is starting to go through, that we're one of many. And we better get to like that, and we better start to feel good about that, because, you know, it's our possibility to, to work in collaboration with with lots of people around the world. And without that, right. nothing much is going to change. Right. Well, I've heard people say that, you know, because this country was found on the pioneer, founded on the pioneer spirit and individualism and... You know, that, that collaboration really isn't our strong suit, and so that's never going to be who we mm-hmm. are as a country. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, what you're saying is that that's, that's going to be our survival. Mm-hmm. And if we don't do that, that's right. we're not going to survive. So, so what do we have to do? One of the things you said was, you know, we really have to be able to access that awakening, that consciousness, right. that awareness. How do we get that going in a, in a really right. powerful way? Well, you can start off with kind of applying what I said a minute ago. You know, you look for what you want to see manifest on a larger scale already present. Mm. And you pay attention to that. You learn how to pay attention to that. You know, yes, we are a very individualistic culture, and we also love team sports. 
Right? Isn't that interesting, right? <laughs> that we is love team sports, right? So uh-huh. all the popular sports are team sports. You know, so well, that tells us something. Obviously, there's something about a team working really well together that has tremendous aesthetic and um, kind of emotional appeal to us. Right. Um, if you go into the world of business, I guarantee you, you know, the, the drumbeat of business today is innovation. Everybody says right. that. And right. if you ask them, well, how does innovation occur, you will always hear stories of teams and networks. Yeah, there might be certain individuals who have certain, you know, distinctive, let's say, technological contribution, but it's never a story of a person. It's right. always a story of teams and networks. Right, right. So uh, I think that, you, again, you just, you got to know what you want to see. You got to know what you want to seek established on a larger scale and you, you, you can find it um, yeah I think we are highly individualistic culture but like any statement of that sort it's an extreme generalization and it misses a lot people are parents they live in families they, right. they care about community probably the vibrancy of community has declined a lot over right. several generations but we still notice the decline people still enjoy a conversation they, you know, they enjoy the opportunities to, to really talk with friends. They really enjoy, I mean, wh- one of the reasons, they, I'm convinced, there's a, and the food area, you know, clearly yeah. a fascinating movement in America towards local food. You yeah. see it in urban gardens. You see it in gardens on school grounds in the inner city. I mean, it's just fascinating to watch that movement. And beside the fact that it, it's in a direction of healthier food, there's something that people really enjoy about buying their food from someone who grew it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You, you, you like the idea of knowing the people who grew your food. And it's not just because you feel more confidence that the food might be healthier. It's because you like the idea that you know them. It's just like, you know, if you go to a, wherever you like to go, store, movie theater, whatever, on a regular basis, you see somebody who works there that you know. So you see all of this, I would call it the, our social nature. Mm. It's really inescapable. Biologically speaking, we're social animals. We are. We yeah. are. I mean, the human beings are not particularly fa- fast. We're not particularly strong. We would have never made it <laughs> if we didn't have this <laughs> extraordinary ability to do things together. Ah, uh, true. And, and so, see, that's in us. And I think this story, this cultural story about um, individualism and extreme competitiveness and all that, well, you know, there's some truth to it, to be sure. Mm-hmm. But again, the part of the creative process is you have to pick your story. Absolutely. Pick the story you want to live. And start, and that will start to naturally orient what you pay attention to. If you want to live a story of collaboration and co-creation of a future that we feel good about, pick that story. It doesn't mean you blind yourself to the things that don't fit. Of course not. But it's, you will naturally start to be oriented towards seeing what it is that you want to see on a larger scale. It's all around us all the time. You know... I know people who have stopped watching network news, cable mm-hmm. news, have mm-hmm. stopped reading newspapers, have mm-hmm. um, only uh, troll the Internet for things they're curious about and, mm-hmm. um, and don't pay attention to bad news. And, and I just, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, I get that, and yet mm-hmm. I find myself just saying, oh, my God, I can't stand the idea of being that disconnected right. from what's happening in the world. You know, it's kind yeah. of scary. Yeah. 
And um, I mean, what do you think about that? Well, I think at the very least you should choose consciously the media that you expose yourself to, as you as you would, you know, as a parent, right? You would right. try to make conscious choices what type of media your kids were exposed to, even knowing that, you know, you, you have limited influence, and at some point you have zero control. Yeah, <laughs> but nonetheless, you would, you would naturally do that, right? Right. Because right. of your concern for children and your, your just awareness that media has a big influence. Why not do the same thing for ourselves? For yourself, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember reading a, a a wonderful interview with the Dalai Lama, and you know he has this this terrific quality of always kind of laughing at himself. Yeah. And he said, you know, there's there's one thing I really am quite addicted to. He said, it's it's BBC News. He said, mm. if I'm any place in the world and I don't get to hear the BBC News, I really feel disconnected. <laughs> well, <laughs> but if you listen to you know good news and BBC. Is a, is a pretty good example, and most of us can hear it. You know, you, you will, in fact, hear about the world in a, in a more balanced way. Yes. And, and so, again, I think it's, it comes back to this matter of making conscious choices, and there really are a lot of options. None of us can complain today that we don't have any options. We've got plenty of options. Mm-hmm. So I know that you work with a lot of leaders, multinational corporations around the world, and um, I'm sure that they seek your advice not only on the strategic level, but on the individual level and how they can be their best self. What do you tell them? Well, I mean, if if you really ask that question, you've already answered it because it's about being yourself, right, not somebody else. Mm. I mean, it's it's really hard to overestimate the pressures on people in, in positions of visible authority. You know, so yeah. you have CEOs, senior people in politics, uh, same thing in schools, any institutional milieu. Um, enormous pressures to right. kind of give people what they want and be the sort of, quote, leader that people are expecting you to be. And, of course, like any of us, uh, you know, how you walk that tightrope and not just fall off and end up being a kind of a puppet on a string versus being the person you could be. I mean, there's, there's an old saying in traditional Chinese culture that to become a leader, you must first become a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we, we forget that. We think leadership is all about strategy and tactics and making an impression. And, of course, right. that's, that's it's strongly reinforced by a media environment of, you know, 10-second sound bites. Right. And before long, you start to think maybe people are only thinking in 10-second sound bites. You know, like, <laughs> that's kind of it. You know, what you see on the outside is what's on the inside. Well, then you've fallen off the tightrope, right? You've allowed the environment you're operating in to so completely dominate you that who you are is completely shaped by, what's, by the pressures around you. Um, so I think that's, you know, if people really ask the question in the way you expressed it, you know, how do I become my best self, uh, then they're already kind of on the right track because there's no simple answer. But yeah. like so many things, it all starts with the right question. Mm. Well, I want to dig into that a little bit more, and we'll do that when we come right back. Okay.
Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. You want to know the inside scoop on how today's leaders do business? How they hire and develop top talent? How do they retain top employees and customers? Tune in to Leadership Leverage on the Voice America Business Channel. Every week, Dr. Robert Denker will offer ideals and facilitate discussion with guests that will help shape today's up-and-coming leaders as well as established leaders in their fields. Listen for Leadership Leverage every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, Radio to Thrive By. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito, and our guest today is Peter Senge. So, Peter, you know, the whole concept, of cultivating self-awareness. There's been lots and lots of literature about this, lots and lots of research about this. Um, CEOs who say they meditate and that that has, you know, changed their game. And, and, you know, we still have the pressures of performance. We still have the the corporate pressure. We have the performance pressure. We have the, um, you know, quarterly stock rates, all of that. And people, I see it when I go into organizations, um, so often it's almost as if they're not even in their bodies. They're just these, yeah. these bodies walking down the hall, right. and they're so connected to all the spreadsheets and you know all the external reports, et cetera, that they're barely present. Yeah. You, you've delved into presence a lot, the whole concept of presence a lot. Talk to us a bit about... Um, what that is, and how to get there. Well, I I do think that um, there's a an opening or a beginning now. Um, 
you see it in so many fronts. I mean, it's it's a cultural phenomenon. It's not just about people in business or just about people who are managers or in positions of authority. It's really quite pervasive, and it's you know part of this waking up of of the U.S. culture. Um, and it really does have a lot to do with with a, a a growing sense of what it means to be. I would say what it means to be a human being, and what it means to live your life. In I guess I'll use for me the simplest term is the one that you would use, be used most in China, um, your own cultivation, um, which is not about any particular religion or approach. Um, right. There is literally an infinite variety of approaches, but it it all starts with intention. You know, is that something that really matters to you? I said before that old Chinese dictum, to become a leader, you must first become a human being. One of the reasons I like that, of course, is it it reminds us that you're not born a human being. (laughs) Most people think, well, I'm born a human being. Well, it depends, obviously, how you define human being, but you're born a body, you're born a set of potentials, you're born a a connection on multiple levels to multiple aspects of, of reality. But all of that is requires cultivation. It's sort of like saying, well, you know, everybody's got some measure of musical talent, but some people spend real serious time cultivating that. Mm. Um, so I, I think that it's very important to recognize that this is innate in being a human being, is this capacity to cultivate or this capacity to grow uh, at a very deep level. It's what really orients us it's whenever we were around somebody at the age of 80 who starts painting or who starts doing totally new things after they retire that are really meaningful to them and generative and creative we admire it because we realize where it's the mirror image of what you see in the infant that human beings are kind of on this lifelong journey of discovery and development it's who we are so i think you have to kind of start with with that acknowledgement, I, I think that we've lost a lot of that, but I think we're in the process of regaining it. The biggest problem right now, I would say, in in the world of of businesses and and let's just say practical organizations, I don't see it being any different in business or school or hospitals. It doesn't really matter. It's it's the kind of professional milieu. Yeah. The biggest problem is this awakening is occurring, but it's not yet integrated. So you could have somebody who who has a a, a serious yoga practice on the evenings or weekend, but has no idea how that influences what they do differently on the job. Mm. Or could be meditating, you know, three days a week, but just no concept of how that is going to change how they manage. Right. Um, right. And I think that's understandable. If we think about this as the first step in really a, a cultural shift, the first step is people have to start to determine that this matters to me and they need to start to get engaged. It's not just a matter right. of reading some books. It's a matter of what you do. It always comes down to practices. So cultivation is always about practices, your doings, not just your thinkings. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really matter what it is. But then the second step is is the beginning of some sort of integration. So how does this help me as a parent? How does this help me as a partner? How does this help me as a manager or um, a person working in any kind of professional role? Um, and, and that's tricky because it's a little hard to go too far in that journey of integration individually. Mm-hmm. So I might have a yoga practice three nights a week, 
but it's, it's personal. It's something I'm doing. That's a good thing because it has to start there. Right. But it doesn't, doesn't need anybody else. You know, maybe I need some support from my family and friends. Fine. But I may not even tell them because it, it really is a personal first step. But to, to start that journey of integration is personal and collective. So, for example, obviously this is kind of the heartland of our work forever. So you're part of a team of any sort, and, you know, you're concerned about the ability of that team to think together about difficult issues, to really have a sense of mutual support and connection. And you'd like to encourage that. So, you you know, you have to develop some collective practices. You know, one of the simplest is just check-ins, something we've done for years and encourage people to do for years so that, you know, you start a team meeting off with everybody kind of going around the circle and saying, now, here's where I'm at right now. Or you get to the point where you can... You can stop a difficult conversation, particularly one that might not be going very well, and say, well, let's just hear a quick check-in. So we just get a, you know, a couple of sentences from each of us. You know, how are you feeling right now? So you're basically creating permission to yeah. bridge between the inner personal world and the outer external world of the work we're doing. You've got to you've got to have some bridges of this sort. I, I don't think it's adequate for the company to support people in their yoga practice. I, I really don't. I think that's great, but it doesn't start to create the bridge because it's still at that level of of individual. So it's got to start to become something that's collective. And there's a million forms of this, and and it's a, something obviously I feel strongly about because I've seen it over the years. Um, and I think today it's it's really really desperately needed. And there's a kind of a third level, which is really much more than individual teams or even informal networks, but, you know, it really starts to become part of the culture of the enterprise in a more integrative and broad fashion. That's very tricky, and there probably are very few organizations that have successfully navigated that bridge uh, because you don't want to become a cult. You don't want to become a new religious right. enterprise. There are organizations like that. I mean, I know organizations that are, you know, based on a particular Christian faith. That's fine. If people join that organization, they know that's that's what they're buying into. Right. Fine. But you know that that's going to not be the right thing for everybody, and and I don't think that's going to characterize a lot of organizations. So there has to always be a respect for the variety of paths. On the other hand, we can say that as an enterprise, here's what we're trying to do, and as an enterprise, it requires us to cultivate a certain kind of culture. And here are kind of the cornerstones of that. And here's some of the types of practices that we encourage uh, that are collective and start to bring that quality, that cultural quality into our day-to-day work. Um, so I think there's that, there's that progression, individual team organization in a sense. So do you have an example of a company that you know of who, who does this? Well, I think that all the examples that I could tell you about are – are relatively ephemeral. And what I mean is, you know, I can tell you stories where it's kind of gotten started, but then it, it runs into difficulties. Uh-huh. And and then I can tell you other stories where the difficulties are still being well managed. But I just, yeah. you know, I always worry a little bit because there are no paragons. Right, right, right. It's not like these guys have got it all worked out and and just go emulate them. Um, Right. But but there are a lot of organizations that have been on this journey. You know, we've been saying for for a long time that you're seeing a new um, um, uh, kind of uh, phenomenon of mission-based businesses. 
businesses that are really created with a clear mission. And yes, they are businesses. Yes, they intend to make a profit. And the purpose of their profit is to support their mission. Mm-hmm. Period. And it, um, seventh Generation was an organization that we yeah. had a long had a long history with. And you know, th- their mission was very clearly to educate consumers on the day to day impacts of of everyday consumer goods, like the stuff in your in your bathroom in your kitchen. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and you know, you bought one of their products, and it was like you had a little a seminar right there because on the back of the product was all this information. They, they, they claimed that their first big kind of strategic breakthrough was research that's showing that the, for most people, the, the healthiness of the climate in their kitchen was much poorer than if they stepped outside the door. Mm. That, you know, that just the toxins in everyday products were so pervasive, detergents, um, uh, laundry uh, the different things you put in your laundry, you wash your soap with, you wash your, your dishes with, um, uh, paper products that were bleached, um, all that kind of stuff was just an invisible source of ill health and that people ought to know. And we ought to provide products that we do our best to make sure they're healthy. And they tried to grow a whole culture around doing that. They're very successful. They were so successful that they were emulated by a lot of the big, big competitors right. like Clorox right. and Procter and Gamble yep. have now got biodegradable detergents. And not surprisingly, their business is now in a tough time. But you know that, that's kind of a good story of innovation. And and but the the more to the heart of what you're saying is they were really trying to grow a, a culture internally. But yeah. with a lot of these business pressures, their board recently fired the founder and CEO. Mm. And, you know, the, the, the future of that culture is now kind of very fragile. I don't think we should be discouraged by it. You know, these are living systems. They're not meant to live forever. They did have 20 to 25 years of extraordinary accomplishment. Uh, just yeah. a, sh- a few miles away from seventh generation is a company that we've had a long history with called Green Mountain Coffee Roasters. Mm-hmm. They're part of the whole movement in the coffee industry, which has been one of the more interesting industries. This is one of the first places the consumers really woke up and said, you know, gee, what's the plight of the coffee grower here? And it started to become clear that fair trade coffee what meant a lot to people. Um, so Green Mountain is a great company. It's just a few miles away in Vermont. And, you know, I recently had a student team up there. I think they thought they'd died and gone to heaven. They couldn't believe they were around a culture with that much commitment to integrity. Oh, boy. Um, so, yeah, there's plenty of examples. Uh, another organization that I think is very interesting now is, is uh, Icebreaker. They make uh, um, um, underlayers for athletes, uh, all merino wool, all natural, all natural dyes, and they're committed to complete transparency of their value chain. So if you take the little barcode on your T-shirt, you can go online and find out which sheep farmer raised those sheep. So you see a lot of examples like this, and I think it's the, it's the phenomenon that's really important. Any individual one is going to follow whatever path it follows. And, you know, again, I, there's no paragons. But I right, think there's right. a growing awareness. You see this also in the, quote, social enterprise movement. More and more young people are really trying to, to kind of bring the best of innovative businesses to deal with social problems. And they're just generally called social enterprises or social entrepreneurs. So there's no doubt about that. And I think gradually we're going to see more and more those are environments where people are really going to integrate deep personal developmental work into how the business works. I don't think there's too many examples yet that have gone too far in that, but I think you'll see it. Well, you know, that makes me think that the whole concept of organizational learning is so vital, and it's 
evolutionary. And so though seventh generation, you know, moved through those 25 years evolving, highly successful to the place where it, its model no longer could compete, yeah. um, and yet it led a revolution. Yeah. And so then, you know, the whole concept of reinventing oneself or reinventing yeah. one's organization um, yeah. and, and what do we learn and then how do we apply it, you know, really matters. And yeah. it's, you know, we have, we have one minute left in our show today. <laughs> and, yeah. and, 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 you know, I feel like we could talk about so much more for so much longer. But if you were to sum up here um, the concept of organizational learning for folks, yeah, what would you say? Well, uh, not surprisingly, uh, from being involved with this and being involved with uh, so many networks of collaborators for so long, I've heard a lot of interesting definitions of learning. But I'll tell you my favorite. Um, my, my favorite is came from a man named Tom Johnson, a remarkable guy, one of the inventors of activity-based costing. <laughs> so believe it or not, this, this definition of learning came from an accounting theorist. Um, who also happens to be a very deep guy. He said, learning is the process of discovering and embodying nature's patterns. Learning is the process of discovering and embodying nature's patterns. Mm -hmm. To me, that's the future of organizational learning on all levels, individually, teams, organizations, increasingly industries, uh, value chains, complex business systems, but societies, ultimately, you know, we're at the very beginning of the beginning of discovering and seeing what it means to discover and embody nature's mm -hmm. patterns. Um, no society can live as an outlaw, you know, for long, living outside the laws of nature. Nature doesn't generate waste. Nature generates circles, right? Everything that's a byproduct of one natural system is a nutrient to another. There is no waste in nature. We generate amazing amounts of waste. Mm -hmm. And on and on and on. I mean, I, I think that this kind of idea that we're on this journey of discovering and embodying nature's patterns is, is I think, a, it's really, to me, what the past, present, and future of all the work is about. Well, Peter, it's been wonderful having you here today. If people want to know more about you and your work, uh, how can they find out? Uh, well, uh, there's a Seoul website, Society for Organization Learning. Just Google Seoul. The website URL is soulonline.org. Um, there's a, a collaborative effort now between Seoul and the Presencing Institute and, and several other groups to, to establish something called the Academy for Systemic Change. You can just go to the website, Academy for Change, with the number four, and you get to uh, .org, and you kind of get to the, to the posts on all that. And one of the things you find out about there is, um, in the world of education, one of our big areas of concentration now, primary and secondary education, is, is a terrific I think historic meeting that will occur in July this year called Camp Snowball with all the most innovative educators for sustainability and systems thinking all coming together to try to grow that network. So anyhow, there's a lot going on, and there's plenty of ways to find out. Great. Well, thank you, Peter Senge. It's an honor to have you with us today. And uh, we'll have to have you back in a year and see how okay. things are going in the world. <laughs> all right. Remember, everyone, to think big, because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Escovito. 
Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.